Welcome to the world according to me. I'm Roger Berkeley, and I'm your host for this podcast. Uh, I don't know how many I've done. People who post these things in general on uh, various uh, forums and scoreboards and whatever, they keep track of this a lot. <clears throat> I guess that's because they need to make money and they're making money. Uh, I don't. Um, I don't need to make the money. Uh, and as you can tell from what you paid to listen to this, uh, that's a good thing. So um, today I, I want to start out with a little news item. And that is, uh, and not a, like a news item that people talk about, but it's one that I'm talking about. Uh, I want to introduce you to the new uh, website that goes along with this somewhat sketchy podcast uh, and the address, which you can find if you can get there. <laughs> you got to have the address to get there. Uh, is podpage, P-O-D-P-A-G-E, dot com slash Rogers hyphen world. If that's uh, too hard for you to remember, doesn't matter. You you can miss it. I'll, I'll find you. I, I'm learning a little bit about podcasting as we go. So uh, as I go, not as you go, you may know a lot. You may even have your own podcast. Um, don't worry. I, I don't haven't asked for guests yet. Uh, that that's still to come. But anyhow. Uh, that's the podcast uh, website, and there'll be some uh, blog entries or whatever, some posts, um, and it'll allow you to access uh, all the episodes um, that I have done, and um, and I don't know what the heck else it does, but it does that. So there you can get at it if you want it. Actually... You can get it at it, even if you don't want it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. So today, I, I want to talk about something that is extraordinarily current, that has always been extraordinarily current uh, in the history of the United States. Now, I'm not going to talk about things like the... Uh, January 6th uh, committee, because you're probably listening to it if you're interested and not if you're not interested. So what's the point? You either know it and love it uh, and are learning from it, or you're not, and or sometimes in the middle. So I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to talk about Roe v. Wade in a very specific way, but only in the most general way. It will be sort of a side thing that comes up. What I'm trying to do today is to reteach you, hopefully reteach, um, or teach you for the first time something you should have learned in high school history, American history. Uh, some of you may know that I was an American history 
teacher for uh, three years before the uh, uh, the Ethical Culture Society decided they'd had enough of me, and they threw me out because they were pretty well convinced that I was going to bring a labor union into uh, their schools. And that wasn't true, by the way. Although, once I heard of that, uh, years later, from a person who was a prominent member of the community uh, at the Ethical Culture Schools, um, seemed like I probably should have. That would have been a good thing. Um, but um, I'm going to talk about uh, what one of the things that I learned in my experience, my life, my somewhat study of the Constitution and why it's important and what it means to us now. So this is basically uh, a history lesson for you. Uh, I know that a lot of people don't want to deal with history, don't want to deal with uh, the possibilities of uh, having to learn new stuff. But I think this is something that if you heard it before, hearing it again at this particular time in the history of the United States is a really good idea. If you've never heard of it before, there may even be a little, aha, so that's what's happening uh, in the revelations or in the comments I'm going to talk about today. Today, I'm going to talk about two words, compact and contract. These are critical, critical concepts in understanding how the Constitution works and how policy is made. Um, and it's really now in view for us because it's even more important. The Constitution of the United States mentions that there will be a, a judiciary branch and that its principal point was to make, um, how to describe it, make judgments as to the interpretation of the Constitution on a federal level. Um, in one of its very first cases, when John Marshall, who was the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and was the Chief Justice for many years thereafter, um, made a ruling that created a concept called judicial review. There was a case that came before the Marshall Court called Marbury versus Madison. What this case was doesn't really matter. Briefly, I'll tell you that uh, somebody got a commission for an office um, and Secretary of State um, James Madison uh, turned it down, said, no, we're not doing that. Uh, and John Marshall said, uh, not only was uh, James Madison wrong, 
but the law was wrong and should not be allowed to take effect. So the interesting thing was not that Madison lost the case. He did. The interesting thing is the Supreme Court had gone from observing and commenting on issues to actually saying, nope, illegal, can't do it. That was a major, major turnaround or change, I shouldn't say, in in how we function as a nation. It was the opportunity for the judiciary branch to become a more active player in the uh, administration of the Constitution of the United States. Now, having said that, let me tell you that the Supreme Court has no right to a subpoena, has no right to arrest, uh, has none of those rights. When, when a case goes before the Supreme Court, the two sides um, have all the evidence to present. It is not the obligation of the Supreme Court to get more. They get what they get, and their decisions are based on that information. That's true today. It's as true as it was in 1787 when the Constitution was written and voted upon. In 1832, uh, there was a case called Worcester versus Georgia. Uh, Georgia seized some Cherokee land on which gold had been found. The Marshall Court ruled that the Georgia law violated a United States treaty with um, the Cherokee nation and was not valid. Um, and therefore, the, the Georgia law was not valid, rather. So Georgia did not have the right to, valid, to invalidate a United States law. That established the concept which I guess had been established before. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Um, I've paid some lawyers, but I'm not a lawyer. Uh, but that basically said, can't do that. Well, Andrew Jackson apocryphally said his decision, he should enforce it, knowing full well that the Supreme Court has no enforcement capabilities. In fact, in this case, both Georgia and uh, the United States did not act on that Supreme Court ruling. They just let it sit and let what Georgia did happen. Partly, hey, they were Native Americans. Screw them. We already took their land. So whatever they have, having become ours, was just fine. Um. But a turning point was reached later. 
Oh, and by the way, I should say, no, I shouldn't say this. I take it back. Um, Later in 1832, the state of South Carolina declared the right of nullification, that it as a state was well within its rights to nullify federal law because, after all, the federal government was merely a creature of the various states that created it. That even for that even for Andrew Jackson, who believed in states' rights, was a a, a position too far, and he did it. In fact, say no, you can't do that. You can't nullify federal law as a state. This is a very interesting point. Go forward now to the Civil War when the Constitution is nullified by individual states for whatever reasons in their discussions. My belief is it was all about slavery. But that that point was federal laws take precedence. You can't withdraw from the Union, which uh, had been put together. And that was just as simple as that. Ultimately, Jackson accepted that. And he then proceeded to declare that South Carolina would not be allowed to nullify the law of the federal government. Now we go forward a little bit, a few more years, to the decision of on the, in the Dred Scott case, where it was decided by um, the then still John Marshall Court that slavery uh, was transferable. That is, if you were a slave and you went with your master to another state, or if you went alone to another state, you were still a slave. You were still property, a property of whoever your master was. And that didn't change if you went to New York, where slavery was outlawed by that time. If you went to one of the territories, <clears throat> and territories were becoming a very big deal. <clears throat> Sorry about that. And um, you were still a slave. This gave birth, the Dred Scott decision gave birth to uh, a real battle. And the battle was between those who said that the United States of America was set up as a compact between the original states and a federal government. Um, that it created. And that's 
That's the compact theory of government. The contract theory of government goes back to the concept that the people who voted on the Constitution, the people, and remember, we're only talking about rich white people here, men, rich white men. That's who we were talking about here. We aren't talking about all the people because all the people was limited to rich white men. So uh, it was a deal between the people and a new entity called the United States of America that those people had set up. It was a separate entity, not beholden to the states, but rather uh, beholden to the people. Now, this is a very important distinction, right? Because under the compact theory, the states can pull apart the, the union at any time just by saying, nope. It's very similar to South Carolina's nullification efforts back in 1832. And it was just, it wasn't allowed. The Civil War was, in fact, uh, fought over slavery, probably. Uh, you agree with me. Maybe you don't, in which case you have every right to be wrong, but you're wrong. Um, it was That's the way it was fought. And some of the justification a lot of the justification for the South's right to leave the Union, right, was based on the fact that the states had set up the government and they could leave the government. They could leave the compact and become independent entities. Abraham Lincoln and a lot of well, most of the people um, who were, you know, rich white men um, said, no, not so. Uh-uh. It, we exist because of the will of the people. Remember, rich white men were the people. They were all the people as far as, um, as, far as the government was concerned with the exception of the fact that if you're a slave, three-fifths of you was counted um, as, as a citizen for purposes of setting up the House of Representatives, which is based on population. Um, but the other two-fifths was nothing. You didn't count at all. And, of course, you didn't count anyhow because you were a slave. Um, so, when you get to the Civil War, compact states say, ah, we can leave. We walked in, we can walk out. Contract states said, no, you can't. We didn't walk in. We simply set up a government that the people then voted on and 
accepted the Constitution, uh, of which I think I screwed up the grammar there. The people voted to set up a separate institution, and it was made up of all the states and all the rich white men in all the states in order to make a new government. Now, they knew why the compact methodology was inadequate. Boy, oh boy, I I got a frog in my throat. I got to stop eating frogs for breakfast, I think. I'm going to take a little drink here. Ah, Orange crush. Um, Anyhow, and that didn't help. They had seen during the revolution, cast your minds back, there are a few of us who actually were there, uh, got the hats, um, got the T-shirts. Anyhow, uh, in that time, George Washington felt the constant, constant pressure to appeal to the individual states who were based at that point um, in New York, um, that that um, the, that confederation of states uh, had the right to fund him or not fund him in his conduct of the war. There's no question that George Washington was, um, he was a complex guy. He was a slave owner. He was, there's a lot wrong with George Washington. And after all, there are no perfect people. Uh, President company accepted, of course. He said, I, don't, I can't do this. I can't win a war when every time I want to go out and buy tents, I got to come back to the people in New York and they're going to, they got to give me the money. The individual states could decide to contribute or not contribute to the war effort during the revolution. So that was the compact theory in its actual operation. The Confederated States of America is called Confederated because it is a confederation of independent entities who have grouped together for specific purposes. The Republican Party of today is largely uh, made up of Confederates. That is, people who believe in the compact theory of government. Now, up until, I'm going to say, 1960 or so, the Democrats, with their support of of the Jim Crow laws and their dominance, political dominance, of former slave states, um, they were the ones who uh, felt that uh, the government um, 
only had limited rights. The federal government only had liberal rights. Uh, liberal only had um, uh, some limited rights to operate the nation. But that belief was powerful. And I will tell you that there was another case back um, in the late 19th century called Plessy versus Ferguson, which declared that it was okay if states set up one system for uh, people of color and another system for rich white people or white people in general, because the women had no, the women didn't exist either. And the, uh, that Plessy versus Ferguson stood until 1954 when the case Brown versus the board of education of Topeka, Kansas declared that separate was inherently unequal. That is, two systems are, by their very nature, not equal and struck down segregation as the law of the United States. Now, of course, politicians, um, enthusiasts, are extremely adept at uh, getting around these things. Uh, But eventually, over time, with the constant pressure of civil rights advocates, particularly Martin Luther King and the people around him, um, won the fight over separate but equal. And and Jim Crow laws had to be removed. Um, so uh, this is not a battle that's over. This is a battle that reappears periodically. Right now, uh, this is a battle that is very, very active. Roe v. Wade said, now... Nah, now, you can't as a state, or, or yeah, you can't as a state say a woman's right to control her own uh, bodily uh, functions and her own uh, bodily rights um, is, is against the law. It violates the Constitution of the United States. And so the right to for... Uh, to abortion or the white, the right to control uh, people's bodies belong to them, not to any governmental authority. The Trump Supreme court, the Roberts court has overturned um, Roe v. Wade and it will continue to operate uh, as um, a function of the compact theory of government uh, as long as the people on it are um, uh, states' rights advocates and, um, and there aren't people to offset that. 
um, which is what happened for, I would say, the last half of the 20th century. The court became a contract uh, theory of government uh, functionary and, and declared the supremacy of federal law over state law time and time and time again. Not every time, but almost every time. Uh, Earl Warren's court, the Warren court, um, was a far more uh, aggressive, um, partly because uh, they were firmly committed to uh, the contract theory of government, and partly uh, because um, let's see, they were con- yeah, and they had a strong view of privacy rights and human rights uh, that were assumed after the thirteenth, fourteenth, and fifteenth amendments were passed to um, to feel that this was no longer an issue. Nobody felt it was an issue. Who was anyone who was involved in the legal system uh, and the legislative system? That has changed. Now, the Supreme Court has always swung left and right. Part of the difference between uh, today and uh, back then is that today the country is so completely divided along partisan tribal lines that uh, it is the Supreme Court is seen with its rather enormous ability to declare the supremacy uh, or uh, nullify um, various laws. Um, it's what they want. And the Republicans have worked on this just full-time, full-time. Uh, there are one or two small still small, uh, uh, cases pending in the judicial system where um, Islamic and Jewish uh, uh, congregations are saying, well, you know, we, we believe that a woman has, uh, uh, has a right to have an abortion, and there are reasons why. I don't know the Islamic reasons. I don't know the Jewish reasons entirely. Uh, but that's what they believe. And they believe that turning down uh, Roe v. Wade uh, is, in fact, a violation of their uh, First Amendment freedom of speech, freedom of religion rules. Uh, what happens to those, much too early to know. The judicial process is very long. It should be very long. Uh, except when, of course, there is imminent danger involved. The Supreme Court, um, the Supreme Court 
uh, had in fact um, uh, swung from compact to contract members um, on and off during its history. And um, they they haven't really um, ever been steady. And the number of justices has changed repeatedly. The most recent case with which you you may be familiar is back during the uh, New Deal when the Republicans had Herbert Hoover, in particular, had appointed most of the justices. And um, people like Felix uh, Frankfurter and some of the other justices um, were just appointed by Roosevelt. But they, the Roosevelt administration felt they were going to raise the number of judges, justices, on the Supreme Court because they wanted more dominance of, um, of the policies. And they would, could do that by controlling the Senate and, uh, and also controlling who then got the seats on the Supreme Court. So that became um, the reason for that attempt by Roosevelt to enlarge the Supreme Court. It went nowhere. People, you know, people didn't want to do that. People got upset with the concept of a political court. Uh, and so we've stayed with the nine just, justices. And I believe the presence of nine justices goes back into the 19th century. Somebody can email. If you go to my page, pod page, dot com uh, slash Rogers hyphen world. You can uh, send me a little email about that and I'll be glad to respond to it. If it's not too much of a trouble, <laughs> now I'll, I'll, I'll look for these emails and we'll see how it goes. Anyhow, that's the story of compact versus contract. And you can look, at people's political leanings, and you can determine whether they are compact advocates or contract advocates. And what are you? Are you a compact advocate, states' rights, or a contract advocate, federal rights? That's, there was a lot of conversation about this in the, uh, Federalist Papers, written by uh, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison and John Jay um, back uh, when the arguments over whether or not to approve the Constitution uh, were flourishing uh, prior to the actual approval. Uh, I want to point out that John Jay and Alexander Hamilton were in the first graduating class from Columbia University. Uh, I wasn't in the first class. Close. But I also went to Columbia. Uh, At one point, uh, my son said to me, well, let's see, 
President Obama went to Colombia, and John Jay and Governor Morris and Alexander Hamilton went to Colombia, and you went to Colombia, right? I said, yeah. He said, well, what the hell happened to you? Well, <laughs> I, 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 I can't tell him that. I could tell him that one of my classmates at Columbia has always said, as long as I've known him, he has said, when it comes to federal elections, I always ask the question, who's appointing the judges? He saw it. Of course, he's a lawyer. So, and he's been victimized by it and benefited from it for many, many years. He's now retired. And, uh, but he spent many, many years working for the Legal Aid Society. Uh, the Legal Aid Society, by the way, uh, is an organization that provides counsel to those who need counsel and don't have it. Uh, and when asked about um, why he stood up for all these guilty people, his answer was clear and concise and totally correct. He did it because the Constitution says everybody is entitled to the right of representation, whether you can pay for it or have it already or don't. Well, now if you have it already, you might, and you can pay for it. You might want that, but everybody is entitled to the highest quality possible legal representation. And that's what public defenders and the legal aid societies all across the country do. They are, they are filling a constitutional um, commandment, uh, mandate, not commandment, mandate. To, to provide uh, legal representation. Well, that's about what I have to say according to this. If, if you were uh, asleep or cut your American history classes, shame on you. If you were my American history class, that small group of people who actually... Uh, were in my class or classes um, and you slept through it, sorry, I just wasn't that interesting, I guess. But if you know it, you should talk about it. If you didn't know it, learn about it. The government is a very, very tricky thing. And we need to make sure that the government that we get is the government that serves us well. So, having said that, that's enough. And I say to you, this is Roger Berkeley <coughs> saying this is Roger Berkeley. See you next time.